The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. And this guy was reading a book, but he had cut off the cover to conceal what kind of book he was reading, but it was about sexuality and and homosexuality. Uh, And he showed me the book. Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio. Episode 5. I am your host, Becky Saltzman. And today's episode, I wanted to curiously take a look at the migration of people, how people move around the world. And I was specifically curious to understand the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker. I mean, there are a lot of different ways that people go from one place to the other, whether they get a specific visa and they're allowed immigration or there are certain criteria in certain countries. It's a lot more complicated as I was delving into this than I thought. But this time, I really wanted to see this through the eyes of someone who wasn't born here and was attempting to make their way here under a very specific program, and that's the program of asylum, and how that differs from a program of refugee status. And is that a decision that the individual makes, or is it a decision that's made for them? These are the kinds of things I wanted to unpack, but very specifically through the story and through the eyes of someone experiencing this. It's fine to talk and ask questions and review policy, but it's really hard to understand what it's like unless you take a peek through someone else's eyes. And this is what this podcast is attempting to do. So today we are hearing from, and I'm speaking with and interviewing, although this is more of a, almost kind of an interview slash story, with Mimpaji Michael Kiramira. And like I said, Mimpaji is in the United States seeking asylum and is from Uganda, or as he says, the kingdom of Buganda. At age 10, Mampaji was forced onto the streets of Kampala, where he lived for almost five years. And by 14, he was an active opponent of the Ugandan president, Museveni, and his dictatorship. He worked as a leader in the Democratic Party of Uganda. And in 2004, the party expelled him for appearing on a local radio station, agitating for the protection of LGBTQ people. Now, let me give you a little bit of a context for what was happening in Uganda in about 2004, leading into 2009, when they introduced what they called the Kill the Gays Bill. And 2004 was kind of the lead up to all this. So Mampaji was really there and is able to explain from an on-the-ground perspective, which is really hard to find. I mean, there's very few people that made it out to be able to talk about this. And Mampaji did. So I think this is a really interesting perspective on this whole kind of movement that was really 
brought to the African continent by missionaries and colonialists. You can read more about the Uganda Anti-Homosexuality Act 2014, aka the Kill the Gays Bill, in the show notes. We'll have a link to all of this. But this was kind of at the moment in time that things were brewing and heading toward this. Eventually, the bill did pass. They changed the bill to not make homosexuality punishable by death, but rather by imprisonment. And by 2016, Mampaji had to flee Uganda and his beloved Buganda kingdom under the threat of arrest, torture, and death in order to seek asylum in the United States. And that's when I met Mampaji. So I think you're really going to have an interesting perspective at the end of this of one kind of immigrant, one kind of migrant, and that is this particular story of an asylum seeker. And like none of our lives necessarily are instructive for understanding another life, one life of an asylum seeker doesn't mean that it's representative of all asylum seekers, but it should give you some perspective on at least this one story. Since coming to the United States, Mampaji has continued his human rights activism, and he has spoken all across the country. And prior to coming to this country, he has spoken all around the world. You can reach Mampaji on Facebook at Mampaji M. Michael. That's M-P-A-G-I-M. And then Michael is M-I-C-H-E-A-L. Or he can be reached on Twitter at Global Mampaji. And without waiting one more second... I bring you Mimpaji Kiramira. When you think about what your youth smelled like, can you describe that? I did not have a childhood. My childhood was robbed off, if I could use that word. So I didn't have a childhood. My mom left me when I was just six months because of her challenges in life. And that's exactly where my life started to date. So I don't think I had a childhood. Now, let me give you a simple story about my childhood. My mom was married to a gentleman far away from Buganda Kingdom. I know you understand if I talk about Buganda Kingdom, this is another kingdom. So my mom was married to a man in another kingdom. And along the way, she met a friend. Her friend told her, hey, look, you are here married. Life is not as it should be. Why can't you just leave your marriage and go to the other city and find work? And my mom, as beautiful as she was and a lifeist, she had no problem even though she already had children, I think four of them. She left her marriage, went with this stranger to another city, and started working in a bar. That's where she met my dad. And when she met my dad, she was working in a bar, and whatever they did, she was pregnant of me. But along the way, she was also seeing other men who were who running after her. And when she got pregnant, her boss say, told her that, look, 
I did not brought you here to get pregnant, so it's time to leave. And my mom had no way out because my dad, the man she believed to be my dad, was already married, having another wife. So my dad couldn't take her in. What she did, she looked around to all these other men who were running up after her. And one of them had established another bar. And my mom left this bar and went to, went to that bar and started working there. People are telling me that she stayed there at that place for two months, worked, got her salary, and went back to her previous marriage where she gave birth to me into another kingdom. These issues are so complicated when I add the word kingdom, but if you've read a little bit of Uganda, you know that Uganda is made out of various kingdoms, and these kingdoms at one time were rivals. So my kingdom was rival to the other kingdom where my mom was married. Also, what you must know is that my mom was a descendant of Rwandese, so many people at one point think that maybe I'm originally from Rwanda, but I, I am not because I took the uh, I took my mom's structure. What would it be that would cause people to think that you were from Rwanda? Uh, we look differently. Even here in Portland, when I'm walking, you would be surprised how I tell people f- who are coming from Rwanda. I, I could meet a black person and just looking at that person, I know that this person is from Rwanda, Eritrea, or any other African country. And chances are that I'm always 100% correct on that one. So people know, the black people know, the whites may not know, but we know because we do have different features that defines the location of where we come from, even though We've not yet said a word to, in our language. My mom gave birth to me and her husband now tells her that, hey, look, this boy is so dark and, and I must tell you, this boy is not my son, but I still love you. What we would do, I would allow you to take back the boy where he belongs and then come back here in our marriage because I still love you. That's when my mom, at the age of six months, took me to my grandparents when I was just six months. Your grandparents meaning her parents or your grandparents meaning your father's parents? My mom simply took me to my grandpa and left me there, maybe with a simple explanation that I had an affair with your son and this is the product we had. And my grandmom didn't have any questions. I want to presume that they were already known because they lived in the same village uh, when she was still working at the bar. So my grandma took me and started nurturing me into childhood and made it possible for me to grow. But the thing is, when I was around three years, I told you about the other man who, where my mom worked when she was she was chased out of her job where my mom was. Right, the other bar. The other bar. This other guy did have children, but he didn't have boys. And in Africa, boys, people treat boys more important because of the, our tradition that when a man dies, it's the son that 
that's a hire. So the guy wanted a hire, but he did not have boys, and he couldn't imagine how he could die and no hire to his whatever legacy he had, which I don't know. So they started fighting, verbal fights, and these verbal fights escalated between these two families, my dad and the other man, each one claiming I'm his son. So it escalated, and then death threats started coming in. And at this point, but also I had, you know, it's very hard to explain to you our traditions. But let me make this clear, because I want you to understand me well. We do have Buganda Kingdom, where I come from. We have the Kabaka on top. Then we have 52 clans. These clans, so at one point we are all connected to the king. So the, the name of the king you're calling that the... The Kabaka. Kabaka. That's yeah, but even the leadership in these clans, you inherit that leadership. Not everybody can have that leadership. So at one point when I was six, one of my grandparents who was a leader in our clan died, but he had no boys. So he, in his will, said, I will be his hire. What is the heir's responsibility? In Africa, usually is to keep the legacy, the name, the blood of that deceased person, not necessarily about property. But we also have arrangements where some beliefs and traditional customs must be performed by somebody who is entitled. What would be an example of one of those? Like, let me tell you, an example is that, um, for example, if we have children, for example, if I have a children in my culture, in my beliefs and traditions, I'm not allowed to choose the names of my son or children. I have to go to my dad and my dad will choose or any other editor in the clan or auntie or grandpa. So the heir makes those decisions. When you assume the responsibility for the heir, you oh, are making those decisions. When I took this responsibility, the other man who was claiming that I'm his son panicked. And he started choosing my dad. Hey, how could you allow my son to, to be a high in your clan? They were from different clans. And it became so tense. How old were you? I was around seven. And it became unbearable that our clan leaders called for a meeting and they passed me to the other guy to avoid death, to avoid these men killing each other over me. So I was around seven and this whole problem or whatever for failure to find a better word this whole circus lasted for over three years. You could Where imagine. Where were you living? Were you going to school? Were you living in your dad's house? No, I was living at my grandpa where I was left at, at the age of six months. And now I'm around seven. The, the issue is becoming bigger and bigger, not only between this man, but also between me and my siblings who started discriminating me, feel like I don't, I'm not their brother, I'm not their relative, all that kind of stuff. So my childhood in that area became isolated. I had siblings. 
sisters and brothers who are not my friends to date, up to now, they are not my friends because deep inside them, they think that I don't belong to their clan. You understand? Right, because you were given to the other bar owner's clan. Yeah. So at the age of 10, this issue came to a conclusion. I mean, the clan meeting came together between my dad and the other man's clan, and they exchanged me like a book to, to, to this other man. But all this happened without my mom. My mom was not involved because none of these two men actually knew where my mom was. Each of these men only knew one name about my mom. They did not know her second name. So that makes it hard to find her. It wouldn't make it hard to find her, but it makes you understand how irresponsible these two men were. I mean, if I'm going to date a woman, the first thing, especially in my culture, the first thing I have to know is the two names of that girl so that you don't collide. Because in my culture, we don't date from our own clans and we don't date from our mom's clan. So they didn't even know her second name. So they didn't even know if they were actually making a baby with someone from their own clan. On this meeting, when they told me that, hey, Mpaji, stand up and shake your hands with your new dad, that's when my childhood ended and I transformed into a man because I walked out of that meeting. I stood on my legs and told the other man who was claiming that I'm his son that, look, never, never at any single time would you think that I'm your son. I'm not your son. I will never be your son and never, never even think about it. It will never happen and it will not. What happened? I walked out of that meeting out of the house, and went my way. Wait, at 10 years old, you went yes. your way. So um, uh, unpack what that means. You have a bag, you put your stuff in it. No, I do not have a bag. I only have my clothes on. I do not have anything with me. By the time they arrived at this decision, I had already made my mind that not going to the other man, but also not returning to the family where I grew up, because I had already experienced injustices. I'm not loved. Uh, I remember my siblings were able to, to wear shoes when they were small. Could you believe that I put on my first shoe when I was 15 years? That's when I first, my foot first experienced what it feels. Even to sleep on the mattress. I was like 16 the first time I slept on a mattress. What were you sleeping on before? Before at my grandmom's house. I also want to tell you that other children were able to sleep on mattresses. It wasn't like all the people you knew didn't have shoes and didn't have mattresses. No, they had all these things. My dad and were, they were farmers, relatively wealthy. We grew coffee and we were able to sell. But I did not enjoy all these things children enjoy, including new clothes. Actually, I can even count how the only time my dad bought a shirt for me, particularly went to a shop and uh, and buy a shirt for me. That's when I was around eight and I outperformed the students in our class. And somehow he smiled and, hey, the next morning I saw that he bought a, a shirt for me. But that was the only thing I remember to get from my dad. 
You're 10 years old and you walk out of this court or this mediation or whatever, and you walk out with just the shirt on your back, no shoes, and you go where? Where do you go? Basically, I started my independent life. Actually, I started staying outside. I became wild, staying in unfinished houses. Our village is on the edge of Lake Wamala, so I already knew how to fish. So I could go in the morning, fish and get fish and eat. Then at night, sleep on the streets, sleep on unfinished houses. Were you with a group of other homeless people or were you just a young child on your own? Was it a common thing to see? In that village, it wasn't common. Actually, I think I was the only child staying outside in the cold. But uh, along the way, some people opened their doors at night, at like midnight. They did not want to know that uh, they were being hospitable to me. They did not want to get in conflict with the two men. So they could wait up to maybe midnight and then, hey, come and sleep here. Then at dawn, they open up their door before anybody else is out and let me go. I lived that kind of life for almost two years in that village. Then up to when it became so unbearable that I moved out of the village and went to the bigger, better city, which is Mitiana. That's around seven kilometers. You you walk there or you... I walked. I walked seven kilometers to Mitiana town. And I started living on, on the streets of Mitiana. And then were you ever reintegrated into the schools? I did not have contact with my family because I did not have a family, you know. These people were all meaningless to me. Now I was a man and ready to defend and protect myself. That's it. And I wasn't going to look back because, as I said, even in the family where I grew up, I had already faced more injustices, mistreatment, not because they did not have. I didn't feel like belonging. So there was no reason why I should stay in contact with them. So um, I started living on the streets of Mitiana. And now I was around approaching 11 years now. And I started thinking... I had previously been attending school, so I knew how to read, I knew how to write at that age, but that was not, not enough. I, I wanted my education because it, it proved to me that it was the only way I could make life meaningful and be able to achieve whatever dreams I would have. So in Mitiana, while I was staying on the streets, I tried to look for Mitiana being a town, had some orphanage centers. I said, well, uh, I may not be an orphan, but I'm more like an orphan. So maybe these groups would take me in. So uh, there is an organization called Uganda Women's Effort to Save Orphanage. This organization was started by the first lady of Uganda, Janet Museven. You could imagine she was a first lady by then up to now. You people talk about Trump. (laughs) The guy who is going to be here for four years. Anyway, let's go back. This this woman was first lady, started this organization, and I approached this organization and said, hey, uh, I need a child also. Uh, I need help. I need a shelter. I need education. And I've seen that you've been helping other people. I also qualify for your assistance. 
What I did not know was that actually it's at this point that I started knowing that Uganda is made up of different tribes because this organization refused to help me, refused to take me in simply because I was from a different tribe. They closed their doors on me. So what did you do? I stayed on the streets collecting water, drawing water and selling water from, I could go to people's homes, collect the jerry cans. Here, I don't know. Here, I don't use jerry cans. I haven't seen them. Jerry cans? Is that what you said? I don't know what those are. I would call them maybe buckets, some kind of buckets, plastic. Like jugs. Jugs to collect water. That's what we use mostly in Uganda. Most towns in Uganda doesn't have piped water, so... We, we, t- we call these buckets, jerry cans, and collect water from the boreholes, and that's the way we do stuff down there. So I could go from morning, early in the morning, and collect people's jerry cans, go to the wall, draw water, and then put each owner's jerry can on their door. Then in the evening, come back and collect money. So I used this money after saving for some few months want to find a place to sleep. I rented a house using this money I collected from collecting water, but I also used this money to return to school. I was now allowed Trello. Tell me about the school you returned to. I went to Mitiana Town Secondary School because I had already finished my primary school. You call it here elementary school. I had already... Is it, is it a public school system, a missionary school system? This school was a private school. Run by... A business person, he started the school to make money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ha- These schools are now becoming a problem in Uganda, but by that time they were still offering better education. People who started private schools were not really after money, but now things have changed. So I could pay in installments and attend class. But one thing I must also tell you, the school had around 2,000 children attending high school students. This is now high school students. Children around 14, 15, 16, and 2,000 children. And I was the only one who did not have shoes. All other students had shoes. Did people look at you differently? Did you feel different about it? Or did, were you just, I mean, were you the poorest student in the school? Were you the only one paying for yourself? I think there were other students who were doing the same, but maybe they had their family support. Maybe, I don't know, there must have been other students who were doing that. But what I remember is that I was the only student who did not have shoes. And my teachers used to punish me for that, beating me seriously for not having shoes. How would you have gotten shoes? I had to have money and go to the market and buy, but I I couldn't afford that. I had only one shirt, one trouser. How could I even afford to buy shoes, you know? And I remember some teachers actually used to drive me out of their classes because they could not think that I could study when I have no shoes. So here I started seeing class, and I knew... The future was not my best friend if I didn't think beyond what other people were thinking. So to me, life was a struggle all the way from day one, from when I was a child up to that age. 
What do you think makes people, or even more specifically, what made you not quit? I mean, a lot of people, you're kicked out of the class for something that they can't control, something happens that they really have no resources to remedy. What made you keep going? Actually, I kept on dropping out and on dropping out and rejoining dropping out. I've been doing that all the time, dropping out of the school and then after some few years go back. Th- that has been my way of educating myself. But what made me not quitting? That's the question you've asked. I told you that at one point I walked to this organization, Uganda's Women Effort to Save Orphanage, and they closed their doors on me. And the only reason which I knew later was that because I come from a different tribe. That was the only reason, not because I wasn't needy. I was a needy person, but to them, they've been organizing this to have other tribes be incapacitated and empower their own tribe to take over. That's why they've managed to stay in governance for 31 and plus years. So from that day, I knew something is wrong with Uganda. And I have to do something to get them out of Uganda or out of power. So I'm, I've been power hungry since that day. I've been struggling to look for ways of having power. And one of the things I've noticed was that education was going to be a key if I really needed to make change and if I really needed to take power. That might be the beginning of your long life of activism. That's where my activism started. That's when it gained meaning. That's when my eyes was opened to all the injustices I've experienced. Prior to that, I knew my family disliked me. I knew my family didn't care about me, but all these issues were so minor to me because I remember telling my siblings that, hey, look, one day you will come begging on your knees. That's all. Initially, before going to that organization, that was the only mentality I had. My mentality was to work hard, achieve everything you can achieve, and make them come and kneel before you begging. I did not think about Uganda. I did not think about justice. I did not think about human rights. Now you have this activism ignited in you. Unpack that whole kind of story and... Um, mindset. There is this organization called Action Aid. I think it's still active, that organization. Before I came to Mitiana, when I was still in elementary school, this organization, that Action Aid, and many other organizations walked to schools, from school to school to school, telling young children that you are going to get friends in the U.S., In America, actually, they don't call it U.S. We call it America. Why do they do that? What are they trying to achieve? These organizations are making money off of that. They are soliciting donations, claiming that they are helping these children in Uganda or other African countries. And in return, these people who are contributing money from U.S. were given letters which were writing, you understand? This organization has made us to write letters every month. They could create a day like Friday, and you are just going to write to a penny poor who you've never met, 
who you've ever communicated. So wait a minute, let me understand this. So this organization is soliciting donations from America, the yes. U.S., yes. in order to sponsor children in Uganda. Yes. And the children in Uganda are promised a connection in America. Yes. Yes. And it's kind of a fun thing or a hopeful thing or yes. a wishful thing. And then you are, the children are required to write letters yes. to these donors yes. saying, thank you so much for your donation. Yes. And what are the children getting for these donations? I remember during the, my participation in that kind of thing, I got like, two pictures of a small young girl who I did not even know which state, where, and I also don't think she knew me. But also one particular thing, this organization is used to read our letters. The reason I know this is that we had these storybooks in our elementary school, and I got tired of writing these letters because I was not getting anything from them. So one day they called me to write a letter to my friend in the U.S., whom I don't know, even never heard of. And what I did, I went to the library, picked up a storybook. I read a very nice story about Uganda, and I completely copied that story. (laughs) (laughs) And wrote that story and put it in the envelope and sent. So after two weeks, the directors of this action aid came to school And I was in the playground playing, hey, Mpaji, come on, come on. They called me in the office and they asked me the story I wrote. From that day, I knew that these people do open up the letters and they read them. And if the letters doesn't talk what they want, they don't post them to the United States. During these exchanges with ActionAid and many other organizations, the concept of coming to America started developing. Because these people were talking nice about America and why we should be happy that we've got some... So there was no awareness of that growing up before? No. before. No. That's when I started learning about America, hearing about it. People who come here are always happy, always with money, drive nice cars, successful. And then the concept started developing that one day, one day I will go to America. During the year I completed my elementary school, we were having all these books written, of course, by whites for us. Then there was a book, I think, called Europe Learns About Africa and Africa Learns About Europe. There is all these Marco Polo travelers. Then I read a book, which I don't remember, but it was talking about this guy, Christopher Columbus. I know now many people have challenged me, but this guy reading his story, I was like, yeah, this guy traveled all the way from Europe to America. This is it. I can do this. And one day I will do that. So my story to desire to leave Uganda is more in admiration of that guy. And more from a standpoint of adventurer. Yeah. But eventually you move from adventurer to something much more, adventure-seeking to activism to... How did that transition happen? Though I've developed an adventure-like kind of hysteria, I did not have... I did not take action on it. I remained on the grid of changing myself and working to better myself. So one day, 
I was in Mitiana and watching all these people. I've read a lot now, so many books I've read. I've read about foreign countries. I've read about missionaries, how they came to Africa. I've read about the good things. When missionaries come to Africa, they don't write about the bad stuff they do there. They always write the good stories. So I've read about how they built schools, how they built uh, hospitals, how they've sponsored children, how they've been taking care of all this stuff. So here I am in Mitiana on streets, struggling to find an education. And here I see these white folks riding in their car with a a car has a word Baptist and there wasn't Baptist churches in Mitiana and I did not even know that who are the Baptists but reading the word Baptist knew that this these are religious people so I approached them and I not because I wanted to be a religious person anyway but because I wanted to I thought being missionaries they should do what the action aid is promising and and fail to deliver they should find a sponsor in the U.S. and that sponsor will say, hey, Mpaji, you are going to stay in school. I will always send money and make sure that you are in school. That's what I wanted from these Baptists. And I started working with them. But along the way, I knew that actually they were not going to find me sponsors. When they told me that, hey, look, we came to Africa to preach the gospel of Jesus. And we did not come to Africa to take care of the orphanage or send them to school. But once in a while, we can help you, but it doesn't mean that we promise to help you over. However, we do offer you a chance to study the Bible with us, to be in our college. They established a theological college by extension, if that makes sense. I started attending their theological college. They trained me as a church planter, to go into the areas where they couldn't reach. Uh, So they were training me to be a missionary, and this is what they offered to train me as a missionary. And during the time I was with them, actually we planted um, around seven churches, and all these churches are still going strong. I was part of them. The last time I visited my village, one church actually, I started it in my own village where I grew up. And the last time I was there, and told them, hey, I left religion. I don't really feel like this is the way I wanted to live life. I saw younger women, older women crying for me, how I'm going to hell. And, and they were like, we would be happy to welcome you back to the church. And I said, no. Why did you leave the church? I left the church because the church wasn't offering what I wanted. I went to the church with hope that I would get education. That was my main purpose of joining these Baptists. I did not want to be a preacher. I did not want to be a missionary. I wanted to go to school and get education and use education as a tool to dislodge nepotism and sectarianism, which I've already smelled in Ueso, that organization which was started by the first lady of Uganda, Janet Museven. That was the only thing I wanted. So if these people had told me that, hey, we are offering guns, guns are the only way to fight them, guess what? I would have accepted. Because all what was in my heart is to dislodge them, remove nepotism, and give every person a chance 
to thrive and live a happier life in Uganda. That was the only thing which was going into my head. But unfortunately, achieving that meant that I had to get education and I had no money. And I always thought that the only way to get money is to tag myself to the religious person, which in this case, the Baptists. So the only reason you left the church after helping build all of these schools and churches was because you weren't getting the education you wanted? Not only that, there were other issues. One of them, I remember there was a guy from the United States uh, who was a president of Integrity USA. This guy was called Michael Kinnis. I think he was a bishop by then. I don't know what happens to him now. I don't know. He was going to visit Uganda. And these people, the missionaries, have spent some good time speaking against him and organized us to protest him coming. But it wasn't a big issue until when I discovered that they started feeding in us that he is coming to turn people into homosexuals and that we should do everything we can to to protest his coming to Uganda. But also, I think my time had already come to move on to another city because the teachings of the Baptists was actually against the way I knew life and the principles of African life. They were teaching about against polygamy, which I think was part of us. They were teaching against homosexuals, but these homosexuals, they were slow. They were talking against it, but not as vibrant as they would have wanted because it was a new concept. People have read about it. People have heard about it, but they had no idea what the propaganda against is all about. So I had all this knowledge I've got from them and their teaching against actual against homosexuality gave me the tenacity to start looking what is it that these homosexuals that these people hate do? I don't even know. I've never met a homosexual. So why would I even mind about somebody who is coming to Uganda and protest? So no, I cannot do that. So this and other disagreements and failure to get what I wanted from them forced me to quit the church. Let alone I even started questioning the whole issue of God that they were teaching us about. But this is a different story which we will talk about maybe another time. Then you leave the church, and at this point you're feeling that, you A, you don't really understand why they are preaching things that are as you said, kind of against the African culture, whether it's polygamy and why they are protesting, making homosexuality such a big deal. What do you do? Where do you go? How old are you? I was around 18, 19, around that age. But one thing you must know is that also these missionaries introduced me to the internet because I saw them using the computers. I used to go with them to the internet cafe, the internet where was starting to penetrate Uganda. And this, I learned all these kind of skills from them. So now I left the church with disagreements about what they are teaching, about not getting what I want, and all of that kind of stuff. So what I did was every time I made some money, I went to the internet cafe. And guess what I was reading about? 
I was reading about homosexuality, what it is that these people hate. From this internet cafe that I learned what it is. And I started seeing organizations, protecting them. But it wasn't really my idea that I should go and start defending homosexuals. But I wanted to know what it was. And I started sending anonymous emails. Every email I could see on the... Because I saw that some churches were supporting homosexuals. So I could share a website... Some of these websites I've already seen in their books. I copied the websites and on my free time, I could go and visit these websites and get the email and send. So it's through this process that I sent an anonymous email that landed in Australia, Melbourne. And in this city, a guy called Jeff got my email and guess what he did? He said, you know, guy, just assure me that I'm sending you two books and these books would help you understand the whole concept of what it is, the church and sexuality. Let me get clear. To understand what homosexuality is or understand what homophobia is? No, understand what homosexuality and sexuality is all about and what's the stand of the church. So he sent me two books. I think one book is called Living in Sin. A Bishop Resinks Human Sexuality, and that's by Sherry Spong. He also sent two other books, which I don't remember well, but he sent three books by the same author. And I read this book. This book, Living in Sin, opened a greater understanding of sexuality. This man explains in detail what and his views and he's very knowledgeable about supporting what he believed in. So I read this book and I became so aware of the whole issue and I say, okay. And then I said, okay, I'm not, I'm not gay. So, uh, but now I know who they are, whether they are my neighbors or whatever. I don't remind me. I'm a political person. I, that's where I want to go. I don't want to get involved in the church and their battles against homosexuals. No, no, no. I don't want that. I want to go and lead people and uh, liberate them. That was the only thing in my head. So in 1998, I was in Kampala now. I've shifted to Kampala. And now a little bit even bigger. Around, I'm older able to defend myself even more aggressively. In Kampala, I tagged myself to the political actors. And I became very active in the democratic part of Uganda, actually to the extent that I was elected the chairperson of my local community for my democratic party. And I was happy because I saw that now people have started understanding who I am, what I believe in, and politics is becoming more lively to me. Making friends when these two young men, who I did not know personally, who were operating a small business within my community, actually Baba Shop, they called their friends and they said, they called for celebration, they organized a party. People, the locals called it a wedding, but I don't think it was a wedding. However, they called their friends into that Baba Shop, had something like a party, but the purpose of this meeting was that they wanted to tell their friend that the kind of life they live may somehow affect and impact each of them to the extent that one of them can die. So they wanted to tell their friend that if this kind of stuff happens 
What kind of stuff? If any of them dies or is killed, they make sure that the property, they were aware that they had bought land, owned a house. Why would they be afraid that they were being killed? They knew because they were homosexuals. They knew their stuff. I did not know their threat because I wasn't in their community. And actually, all the people they called were homosexuals. So their community was big. I wasn't part of it. So they called their gay friends to tell them that you've known us for so long. And now we want to make it clear that if any of us dies, actually, let me tell you the story. During that time, there was a GOBT rights activist in Cameroon called Fenian Eddy. That woman was murdered when she was from her office. I think it's this murder that initiated these guys to call their friends. I have always forgotten that. Fenian Eddy, she was a Cameroonian lesbian activist, murdered, and the whole continent of Africa panicked. The, the GOBT community in Africa panicked. But we who were not part of them, we did not know. Now here comes these two younger men inviting their friends, saying that, look, if any of us is murdered or killed, just know that our property should not go to our relatives or whatever. Anybody who stays would be responsible because we've been working together to achieve all this stuff. It's just reasonable that one of us take responsibility, not relatives. Because what happens in Africa when you die, your relatives, even with women, when you are not officially married, when I die, people will descend on my wife. Even those who didn't like me in the first place, they would go after her and drive her off, off land. These kind of wrongs are very common in Africa. So what happened was that these people were preparing each other. And again, because they were in the community, in their business, people observed what was going on. And being a political leader, a party leader in my community, people started coming to me that, hey, Mpaji, you are our leader. You are aspiring to take a political office. But what, these people organized a wedding and you kept quiet. Not just me, they even approached other political activists. And to be honest, we did not take it as an issue. But people started not making noise, campaigning against these younger men's business. They were approaching you not in support of these men, yeah. but actually to say, why aren't you doing something against these men? Yeah. And then you had just done nothing because it wasn't really on your radar. But in that scuffle, I, I was like, okay, wait a minute. What do those men do? Ah, those men are recruiting our children in homosexuality. I said, are they recruiting your children? Have you seen anybody being recruited? You don't know. You don't know what you are talking about. For us, we know because we live with them. I said, okay, wait a minute. I have to understand this. Then it's around that time that I started recalling the book I read about sexuality. Then the whole issue started making sense to me. But as I was still struggling to understand and how I should react. The newspapers, I remember Daily Monitor, uh, we, the paper which is still ongoing now, writing a very big banner on their paper that, hey, gay wedding in Wandegaya. And I wow. 
are they writing about the other two men? It was unbelievable. That they weren't But, writing in celebration. No, they were not. They, they were writing to, to mobilize, to make people rage. That, that was their purpose, to make people go and attack them. So, and actually people tried to attack them because the Daily Monitor's publication created even more noise which attracted the president. And now the president sends his police, his intelligence to go and look for these men. And he went live on TV that, hey, I've sent my people to go and arrest these younger men. We cannot accept this kind of behavior. There is no homosexuals in Africa. It's not our culture. This is all this kind of stuff. The president was rageful on TV and I watched. I said, okay, wait a minute, Mr. President. Maybe I've read a thing about this. So, Being as a small political person, what I did was to pick my pen and write a, an open letter to the president through the same newspaper. Uh, actually, one writer have quoted some of my letters. Uh, there is a book uh, written by one scholar, and one of the emails he quoted me, he, he, he's quoting me, she's quoting me in, in her book. So... What she did was that I wrote the letter to the president, an open letter through the news letter. I say, okay, Mr. President, uh, I've seen you on TV, I've heard you, but I don't think that we've given enough time this issue to think about, about it. Arresting these people, I don't think is the right idea. I also don't think they violated any law because I've read extensively about this issue. And I somehow believe they've not committed a crime. So if they've chosen to live the way they want to live and they've not raped anybody, I don't think they should be arrested. That was my simple letter. Now, this is what happened. People read my letter. Those who are pro-gay rights read my letter. Those who are against gay also read my letter. But also they were... They are, we are gay people. Now, these are three categories of people. They are people who are pro-gay, scholars, educated people. They are not gay, but they are very knowledgeable about the topic. They wrote to me saying, man, you have energy to respond to the president. But then those who are opposing were writing to me saying, hey, where do you get the energy to respond to the president? Who are you? We don't even know you. Tell us where I want to show you what we can do. Those were people, that kind of people, threatening, of course. But they were these gay men. I've never met a homosexual, but they started engaging me that, hey, look, we are here. We've been waiting for this kind of voice, but you've taken a step. We thank you. Are you one of us? Who are you? Would you mind if we invite you for lunch? And I was, wow. And to be honest, I was around now 22. This was the first time I was being invited for lunch. Even when I was with these missionaries. These missionaries used to take me to lunch, but it was lunch by extension that I've worked with them all day, so they are going to eat. So I joined them. But this was a formal invitation for me to have lunch with these guys. And guess what? I went, and these were nice-looking individuals, 
educated and working within government itself. How are these people, these are homosexuals that are working in a government that is rooting out homosexuals in government and in society. So are they deep in the closet? Are they taking a risk? They were in a closet because I remember uh, walking into one of the offices because I had to check out their office. They called me into their office. Then we walked together out of the office to go on lunch. And this guy was reading a book, but he had cut off the cover to conceal what kind of book he was reading. But it was about sexuality and and homosexuality. Uh, And he showed me the book. I became friends with them. They continued inviting me to their outings. When they were going maybe to enjoy some coffee, some dinner, they could invite me now once in a while. And it's through these meetings that they, they brought an idea to start GLBT clubs for the first time in Uganda. And we created a club, something like a club, which we named Homo Active Uganda. Actually, I chose that name because when I wrote in my correspondence to the president, I told him, you said there is no homosexuals in Uganda, but what about homoactive? But homoactive was just a word I used. It wasn't an organization. It wasn't, I just put homoactive Uganda. What, what about that organization if you say they don't exist? So then you had to go make it exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we gave, we gave it this name. But most of these guys were professionals, doctors, and they did not want to associate with that kind of stuff in open. So they proposed we change the name, and we changed that name to Spectrum Uganda Initiatives, an organization which is still ongoing now in Uganda. And in that process, they put me in charge. I became their spokesperson. I became the leader of Spectrum Uganda. But I wasn't gay. I did not have a girlfriend. They never asked me whether I am or not. No, they were not interested in that kind of stuff. They were interested in establishing a voice which can at least speak out when rages of people come up. Why did you feel that you were safe to establish this organization? And were you safe in establishing it? What happened? The truth is I did not know if I was safe or not. And I also think homosexuals themselves didn't really know how dangerous the issue they were dealing with is. Because, you know, there was no such a debate. People were like, we suspect these guys are homosexual. But uh, this debate has become hugely political. So are you saying this is before it was political? It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't political. Okay, let me say it was a debate underground. But it was also a debate within themselves. Like they could ask what would happen if we go public, all that kind of stuff. But they were... And now we all of what would happen. Now, this is what happened. When we started Spectrum Uganda, many other students from uni- various universities started creating a replica of our organization. And now there is this organization called UNAIDS. UNAIDS had a diplomat in it. I think he was from Netherlands. And this diplomat was called Francisco Massin, I think. This guy started following the debate. He himself was gay. So he started, wow, there is something awakening, as they would say. 
taking place. Yeah, finally the debate is up. They started talking within their communities. And this guy took on himself to look for the leaders of these clubs at the universities, this diplomat. He got in contact with them. He got in contact with me. And one day around 2004 now, he invited us to his meeting. And this meeting had gays and pro-gay. And it's in that meeting that we agreed to create an umbrella organization, which could work as a single voice on a national level. And we called that Sexual Minorities Uganda. And I was voted to be their public relations officer. Then we voted a lesbian called Julie Mukasa, who is actually here in the U.S. also, to be the chairperson. And I used my position because I had already known some political people within the media to start agitating to my radio personalities. Hey, why don't you give us a voice? Why don't we talk to this issue? And the first two shows we we had were from KFM and were in English, but people were not violent. People didn't get it. So I said, okay, I don't hear the drums. What can I do? I need to hear what people say. So I approached this Luganda local radio broadcasting in my native language, and I proposed to the show host, why can't you give us some time and talk about this issue? The guy wanted us to pay money, and we did not have money, actually. We are so poor. And, you know, this show attracts political elites, and we cannot simply let you. But one day, this guy had called several politicians to come on the show, and all the politicians pretended to be busy. So the show was going to happen within an hour, and he was still waiting. No one is showing up. So 15 minutes to the beginning of the show, he called me, hey, Mpaji, can you get on a ride and make it here? I want to give you time. I, just be quick. I left. Actually, I was eating dinner, and I said, yeah, this is what I always wanted. Let's go, let's go. I and Julie, I mentioned her before, and another guy called Dan. Dan is also here in the U.S., got asylum. They came before me. They came to U.S. before me. We went to the show, and we were in the studio talking about homosexuality. People started calling in, abusing us. And this is where I think I made myself a mistake. Because I remember this Peter Chibazo, the presenter, asking me, asking Julie first, are you a lesbian? Julie said, yes. Ask Dan, are you gay? Dan said, yes. Then he came to me, and this is where I made my worst mistake. He asked me, and you, Mpaji, are you gay? Before I answer that, I want to tell you that now that time has been going on and I'm involved with these gays, some have come up, are my real friends. In between that development, people started asking me that if you are not gay, then why are you associating with them? Tell us, are you gay? So when Peter asked me this question, I was like, if I say I'm not one of them, then they will ask, why am I working with them? That means I am. So Peter asked me, Mpaja, are you gay? I said, yes. And that's the worst decision I ever made. 
to accept that I was, yet I wasn't. I wish if I had all the knowledge that I have today, things would have been different because that decision, that yes, went on me from the studio to my political career. I lost my political party position. I owned a small business. I was chased out of my area. My inventory was attacked. People started shouting at me, hey, homosexual, homosexual. Life started becoming harder. Even when we are still in the studio, people started gathering outside the radio station, demanding, we want to show these self-claimed homosexuals. We want to teach them lesson. And people were chanting to attack us. And the radio station had to keep us in the studio for almost two and a half hours. The police station is not very far away from this radio station. It's like a block away. But they did not come to intervene to see what was happening. Well, I left, uh, I left the station knowing that I've made a, a big mistake by accepting that I was gay, even though I wasn't. And the next thing that happened, I lost my business. People attacked my business. People started pushing me off the public transport. I couldn't use a taxi. People were shouting like, I'm a criminal everywhere, homosexual, homosexual, homosexual. Life have been like that all way to, to the time we've got these laws, the anti-homosexuality bill, then the law passed. In a way that now you have to live an invisible life. You have to hide. You cannot walk on the streets. People simply want to target you. People want to stone you. Life became so dangerous that even going to the market to buy food, it was so rough, so rough. Why? Because people think that you are trying to erode the African fabric. To the extent that you cannot even rent a a house, you cannot get hired, you cannot get anything, anything. And to this point, I was like, this is enough price I've paid. I've paid too much. I cannot wait to, to be murdered. Especially things even became worse when one of the gay men was murdered in Uganda, David Cato. And things became even more serious because people could know that they could do it. But not only that, the churches responded by organizing their members within the church. And it's these churches led by fundamentalist pastors that approached the family fellowship in, in the U.S. requesting missionaries. This is how people like Scott Lively, uh, Stephen Anderson of Arizona ended up in Africa and in Uganda's missionaries to preach homophobia and the religious groups were telling people that if government cannot protect us from homosexuals, we should take the laws in our hands, target them, find them wherever they were. If they own a house, burn it down, make sure that you, you kill them. Even now, this is the same story which is still ongoing, you know. People are blaming HIV on homosexuals. People are blaming poverty. People are even blaming mismanagement of state resources on homosexuals. And all you could hear is that let's get homosexuals out of our country. Let them go to America. When we are going to the presidential poll, that's last year. This became an issue. Presidential candidate couldn't discuss how our brothers and sisters are dying while giving 
But instead they say, I'm the only one who will stop people from recruiting your children in homosexuals. Vote. And you know what? It's nasty, it's dangerous, and it's becoming more dangerous because the more people are becoming frustrated with government, their frustration is poured to the homosexuals. Back to your story. You're now realizing when you've lost all this pushed off public transportation, can't get housing, harassed, and at this point, threatened, your life is threatened, you decide you're going to need to leave. How does someone with your resources, with this kind of discrimination, how does someone plan to leave? Uh, You know, we look at these issues of refugees, we look at these issues of asylum seekers, and we look at these issues of immigrants, and they're very different. But your situation is in the category of an asylum seeker. And I want to know, what did you do? What steps did you take to leave Uganda? One thing you must know is that under international law, if I wanted protection from the United States, I was in a way willing to be accepted by the U.S. Embassy. You could imagine that I could just go to the U.S. Embassy and claim protection. And that's what what's within the international law. But the U.S. Embassy in Uganda, and indeed like many other African countries, is not even accessible. You cannot even approach it. You know, it's like you are trying to enter, I don't know how to describe it, not even a Paris. These people enclose themselves with so many security that if you want to go into the embassy and claim asylum, it's almost impossible. So while the U.S. claims to open its arms to people who are persecuted, the GOBTs and other stuff, unless you are big enough, unless you are so over the top, you are known nationally, but people like me, in my status, it's almost impossible to access the U.S. So what I did first was to start writing, begging my friends in U.S. who had already started reading about our struggle, to, to get me an invitation. And guess what? No one was willing to write the invitation for me to get a visa. When I got the invitation from somebody, I, I, I went to the embassy to apply the visa. I paid $100 for, for that application to be processed by then. And they said, okay, you want to go to the U.S. to visit your friend, but you are poor. You cannot go to the United States. You will stay there. And actually, it was the real thing. I wanted to run out of Uganda, but the guy, the consular officer is telling me, we cannot give you a visa because we suspect you have no ties in Uganda that will force you to return to Uganda. So no visa. That was my first attempt. The second attempt, I got an invitation again, applied and paid $100 and... No visa, yet my life is continuously in danger and moving from one place to another, exchange, changing houses now and then, no work, nothing. My life is getting more and more threatened to survive. Now, here, there is a time when I gave up and I said, this is too much and no one loves us, no one is willing to help us, no one is willing to protect us. So I kind of gave up. But the last attempt when they attacked me at my home, I said, did I give up? And people are still looking for me to hit me? No, a wise person doesn't give up. So what I did this time, I went back to, you know, when these 
visa officers deny you visas. They give you these pre-written decisions. They already made before they knew even you will apply for a visa. Then they give you a note that we've looked at your application and you don't have ties to return, blah, 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 blah. So I said, okay, let me go and look at this paper they gave me and see what reason is they gave me that I shouldn't get the visa. And they ticked two issues that I should not go to U.S. because I don't have ties. I'm not married. Uh, I don't have uh, children. I don't have property. Then the other thing was travel history, that I did not have travel history. And I said, okay, but how can I create travel history when you don't give me a visa? What if every person... Every embassy denying me a visa. How do I get travel history? I said, okay, if this is it, I need to create travel history. Then I started mobilizing resources, small resources from my friends, because this time I was extremely poor, no job, had no money. But I had to explain this to some of my friends who are now sending me like $50 to survive. I tell hey, I, this is what I need to do if I'm to... to, to to get out of Uganda, and it took a lot of energy and convincing and writing thousands and thousands of emails. Then some of these people said, okay, we understand, let's try to do it. We tried to apply for Australia, it denied me, and several other European countries. But I kept the pressure on them that if you really want to save me out of Uganda, this is what you have to do. You have to help me with some financial help and get out of Uganda. So some of these people organized some resources, and I started traveling, Kenya, Rwanda, Tanzania. My passport gets stamped, but guess what? The United States of America. If you travel to Rwanda, you are from Uganda, and you travel to all these Asian countries or other countries other than European countries, the United States, the mighty United States, doesn't recognize that as international travel. So <laughs> that's funny how the U.S. is. Anyway, I had to go to India, but still they don't think India is international travel. Then I went to South Africa. I went to South Africa twice. I went to India three times because this destination initially were cheap. Are you going to India, yeah. turning around and coming back? Yeah. Are you traveling around at all? For example, this is the trick. The trick was to collect a lot of travel stamps in my passport to present myself as a busy traveler so that when I return to the U.S. embassy, they don't say you don't have travel history. For example, I was going to South Africa, but guess what? In South Africa, we have direct flights from Uganda to South Africa, but I had to buy a flight from Uganda to Dubai and then from Dubai again to South Africa. You understand? The magic was that I fly to Dubai and applied another visa to enter Dubai, meaning that at the airport of Dubai, they stamped my passport. I entered into Dubai in and out, and those were four. The visa and two exit and entry. And then I went to South Africa, came back through the same process, stopping and creating a lot of stamps in my passport. This process took almost 15 years for me to complete. Meanwhile, you're poor. I'm poor, surviving on handouts of strangers and some few friends in the U.S. who had now got to know my story, 
started sending me some small money to survive. That's how I almost, in all these 15 years, I almost survived on handouts from people in the U.S. who knew my story, who were following me on Facebook, who were following me on all these other newsletters I used to write. They started chipping in $100, $50, like that. That's how I managed. So for 15 years, creating the history. And after 15 years with all these stamps in my passport, I said, now is the last time I get to attempt this. But this time I did not seek the invitation because the United States, if you send me an invitation like you, they don't value your invitation. What I did was that I created a blog as a, a business person, Mpaji Trading Company Limited, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. So I, I had a blog where you could see that I'm a business person. That was step one. Step two is to read, to get a trade exhibition in Miami. And I got this company which was going to exhibit. And I said, hey, I want to attend your trade show as a visitor. And they said, okay, do you, do you really want to, to attend? I said, yes. Would you support yourself? I said, yes. Okay. I registered with that trade company. They sent me an invitation for free. So when I went to the U.S. Embassy, I applied the visa as a business person. Then they put my name in. They saw that, yeah, this guy maybe is a business person. I got my visa. It was three months. I had no money. The ticket was going to cost me $1,700. I had, again, to mobilize many people. And actually, one of my friends set up a GoFund to raise $1,700 for me. You came here, and then you, and I recall you ended up going back and then applying again. Yeah. But by then, you showed enough you would leave the country and come back. And that's when you left Uganda to come here with the idea that you're finally seeking asylum. Even at first, I had the idea, but this is what happened. The first time I landed in Minneapolis, and I was hosted by a holder. And the holder didn't want me to move out of the house. He had no knowledge about asylum. The law in this country said that he didn't have any right to host me, to help me under the law. I lost almost 20 kilos. I became so small. I became so frustrated. I was like, wow, this is the U.S. I wanted to come in. I really don't know. All these people were like, go to this organization. I approached many organizations working on justice and whatever, and all these charity organizations, and everybody was not willing to take my case on. And in the meantime, the visa was expiring and I had to leave. What I have to do is to go back to Uganda and reset myself. Just a week after my arrival in Uganda, I applied again. And this time the U.S. consular did not ask questions because I had proved to them that I can come to U.S., and returned to Uganda. This time they gave me two years. I said, wow, this is what I wanted. So now if it means to sleep on the streets in the U.S., time has come to leave the Ugandan situation. During my first visit to the U.S., there is a person in Eugene who contributed some money to me. And because this person told me I could only host you for 10 days, I had to find a place 
to go to where now that I have to leave him. And also what I must tell you, when I mentioned that I want to seek asylum, many people distanced themselves from me. So I became alone. No one wanted to talk to me. Wait a minute. You're saying that here in the U.S., when you were here and they were thinking that you were coming as an activist, they were welcoming you with open arms. But the minute that you declared that you wanted to seek asylum, are you saying that your motives became suspicious? Yes, people started closing their doors on me. People even asked me, why do you want to stay in the U.S.? Yet when I was in Uganda, they understood the dangers I was facing. What do you think is the cause of that suspicion? The cause is that there is first the general public of the U.S. doesn't really understand how government policies work. People have very little knowledge about all these laws, all the immigration. People talk about immigration, but don't even know what the law says on immigration. Do you think that people think it's easier to come here than it is? What is the biggest misconception, at least in your experience? There are two things which I want to point out. Two, people lack knowledge about immigration and asylum system, all that kind of stuff. But the most important issue, most American citizens think that if they help an asylum, they think that asylum seekers are illegals. So they envision themselves being in trouble, government coming after them for aiding an illegal. Yet asylum seekers in the U.S. are not illegal. They came here legally. I got a visa to come here within the law. So I wasn't here as an illegal person. How did you move from using your visa to come here to actually being an official asylum seeker? What is that process? The process was hard, but I stayed in Eugene, and in Eugene I couldn't find an organization to help me. And my host in Eugene suspected me to seek asylum, and she was like, "Ah, I'm in trouble helping this man. I thought you were coming to visit. You know, I advise you to go to Portland. That's where you are more likely to get the the services you need. So she helped me get to a hostel here in Portland, and I started my way. So one day, I was walking on the streets trying to find all these charities I read about, seeking help. I met somebody who directed me to Pivot. Pivot? Yes. I walked to their office and I told them, hey, look, I need your help. I am from Uganda. I want to seek asylum. And they said, we cannot help you much, but we know a Ugandan who works with refugees. So this Ugandan, they gave me his telephone number. I called him. He came to see where, me where I was sleeping. And he told me, hey, there is a lawyer. You will have to mobilize resources, money. But uh, I will pay for you the consultation fee. The lawyer charged me a consultation fee of $50, which I did not have anyway. So this Ugandan friend paid that $50. And uh, I went to the lawyer for consultation, the lawyer told me the process takes up two years. He told me you are not supposed to work, you are not supposed to get any public support, not even food stamps. And I remember tears running out of my eyes asking the lawyer, now how do you want me to survive? Let me get clarification, because it wasn't just that you were upset that you couldn't get government resources, you were also upset that you weren't allowed to work. And if you did work, that would negate your asylum process? Yes, yes, because I was breaking the law. The lawyer told me, because the lawyer had to brief me through that, if you apply asylum, the lawyer told me, it's going to take two years to get the asylum. But not only that, 
you are not supposed to work for 180 days. Then you are not supposed to get food stamps. You are not supposed to get medical aid even if you are sick. And I asked him, how do you want me to survive? And the lawyer told me, that's not my concern. I don't know. That was a very painful statement to receive on my side. If you had been a refugee, would the process be totally different? The difference between a refugee is that a refugee leaves his country, a person leaves his country and crosses into another country, like the refugees from Uganda, they cross into Kenya or any other country. And within that country where they cross in, they present themselves to the United UN Refugee Agency. So the term refugee is a UN term with specific criteria versus an asylum seeker. This is what happens. When they present themselves to the UN, the UN takes over, provides food for them, provides a place to sleep, and all these medical other things, until when they verify their information. When they verify their information, they issue them a certificate of refugee. And once they get that certificate of refugee, this UN agents also start coordinating with members of the UN. That includes the US and many other countries. So they go to US government and tell them, look, we do have five refugees who are seeking refugee on GLBT or homosexuality prostration grounds. And the US can say, yeah, we take them in or we don't take them in. Then they go to another country like that. So by the time these people come to the U.S. as refugees, they are refugees under the law. They are entitled to work immediately because they have the work permit by that time. The moment the U.S. accepts to take them in, it issues with social security, with, um, with work permit, and initial accommodation sometimes. The U.S. helps some organizations to provide initial uh, accommodation. Sometimes this has been, the initial accommodation can last up two years. Then the refugee will start working, saving money. And then the U.S. system through its agencies still provide some small support. Even after the U.S. had taken these refugees in, the U.S. is still answerable to the U.N. That, hey, how are the refugees we gave you uh, integrating, you understand? But when you are an asylum, the UN doesn't protect me. Can one choose to go either as an asylum seeker or as a refugee? Or once you flew here, your only choice was as an asylum seeker? Some of my friends chose to go as refugees when we are still Uganda. It, it wasn't just me. Other people chose to come as Asylum seeker. They How get, does that choice look? This is what happens. A person can spend two years or even more in refugee camps. When you present yourself to the, U, to the UN, the UN puts you in a refugee camp. We've seen, I've read a lot of stories, including GOBT people who are my friends, are telling me, don't ever, ever make a mistake to go to the UN and claim refugee protection and uh, GOBT issues because even in the camps, other refugees were targeting, they were targeting GOBT 
people hitting them uh, they i've read a lot of horror stories however i had already started learning the whole concept so in the us and other countries when you are an asylum seeker and you are able to support yourself then you can wait on the process the only problem comes in when you are unable to support yourself like me i wasn't unable i had to struggle in order to survive some were very friendly extremely friendly but some were not friendly but even these who were not friendly they were not friendly not because they did not like me no it's because they feared the unknown they did not know how will the us government react to them had it find that they helped me So you're suggesting that a lot of people don't really understand the difference between uh, refugee status and immigrant and illegal immigrant and uh, asylum seeker, and that creates a fear that they may be breaking the law by helping you. But because some people must have understood that, you are here today and you're working through the process. And so just because in the interest of time, want to kind of bring it to today where are you with your process and then in advance of that i'd like to ask if you would be willing to come back for a round 2 because i'm sure that your story and what has happened since you've been here is a, is an amazing story and i'd like to also hear about your communication back with uganda and what's happening where are you in the process what has happened and how are you supporting yourself day by day i've been here now for some good time almost 18 months so Six months passed, the United States government gave me a work permit. So now I'm able to work, earn some money, and uh, that's uh, the way I support myself. I'm still waiting a decision when will the United States grant me status to stay in the US, which I expect to be around July next year. What determines that status? What are your what are the odds? What happens if at the end of this process they say No, sorry, you can't stay here. What is the like what are they saying the likelihood of being able to stay uh, here? The lawyer assured me that my life and the work I've been doing under the law in the US grants me protection. That's one thing the lawyer assured me. And also I hope that if they make a decision against me and they say you have to leave, you know, The US is a system so I would have I would have to appeal the decision within a court or oh, there is this court of immigration I will have to appeal the decision but when that comes I will have to maybe come to your rescue and mobilize people to help me because I couldn't afford that <laughs> Absolutely this is kind of where you are now working and having people help you but also contributing working paying taxes right Yeah yeah I do I do pay taxes I enjoy all the infrastructure and uh, for sure I know all this infrastructure are a result of paying taxes because your activism has certainly not slowed down i'm and that's kind of how we came to know each other sort of i'd love to ask you to be back on to talk about that what it looks like what what's happening in uganda now and and how you're in communication with uganda so mpaji are you going to be up for a round 2 soon yes i'll be available but as we go i want to tell you one last important thing there is some organizations in us like ako which helps refugees guess what this organization knows a lot about asylum and all the refugees i approached them and i told hey i'm seeking asylum they oh sorry we deal with refugees we don't deal with asylum seekers so that was a huge blow to me i think 
we need to find a way. Yeah, as you said, I'm an activist. I think we need to find a way how asylum seeking could... The challenges we face when we come here should be addressed. And no other person I hope to initiate this other than me. So with that, I promise to come back here to talk about all this stuff, my life in the U.S., what's happening in Uganda, all this kind of stuff. I'll be happy to come back. Okay, great. Well, we'll be excited to hear from you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Mempaji is an international human rights activist and is currently seeking asylum in the United States. He can be reached on Twitter at Global Mempaji. That's M-P-A-G-I. The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity. Escape the boundaries of ordinary.